So when you have a question and you don't know the answer, where do you turn? Maybe you're having a conversation, a question comes up, you don't know the answer, where do you go? Google. If you're anything like me, you turn to the all-knowing Google, right? And in a matter of seconds, you type in your question and Google's impressive algorithms that I, I don't even know what those are, but I've been told they have an algorithm that churns out the most relevant answers to whatever questions you may have. In fact, I, 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 it's hard to, for me to even remember a time when you'd be hanging out with your friends and you'd have a question and everyone would go, I don't know the answer to that. And you just go, huh, I guess we're just not going to know the answer to that. That doesn't happen anymore, right? We, we have a question and we turn to Google for the answer. So this week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I opened up a new browser window and I asked Google a question. How can I know God's will for my life? Just by show of hands, anyone ever ask Google that question? Anybody? It's okay, you can raise your hand. Thank you, there you go. The honest people in the room. Do you know how many results it produced in 0.47 seconds? Get a number in your head. How many results? 1.96 billion, that's billion with a B, results. It It would actually be impossible in your lifetime to sift through all of those results. Page after endless page of blogs and articles and books and videos, all giving their answers to one of the most Uh, often frequently asked questions of all time. How can I know God's will for my life? And I think it's an honest question. People have a genuine desire to want to make decisions to live their life in accordance with God's will. If there is a God, surely he cares how I live my life. Think about it. As you think of the endless possibilities It seems like the landscape for your life is wide open. Should I go to college or trade school? What career path should I take? Should I get married? And if so, then to who? I have to live somewhere. Where should I live? God, do you care where I live? If I get married and have kids, how many should I have? What activities should I fill my waking moments in the day? Should I volunteer my time? And if so, Where should I volunteer my time? If I happen to earn money, what should I do with that money? What should I do with the money that I earn? At the end of my life, should I retire? If so, what age? And then what? What do I do in my retirement? And the list goes on. And those are just the big questions, let alone the many decisions you're going to face today. What are you going to eat today? Are you going to turn on your AC today? The answer is yes. But with this sense of endless opportunity comes confusion, anxiety, indecision. You ever gone to a restaurant and they've got like a whole binder they, they hand you with page after page after page after page? And the, at first you think, oh, I love that there's all these choices. But then what happens? All of the endless choices paralyzes you to make a decision. I'd rather know what are the five things you do well? Because surely you can't do a hundred well. Endless opportunity can often bring confusion, anxiety, and indecision. And so it's very common for us to ask, God, with all of the possibilities before me, what should I do? How can I know your will for my life? Am I the only one that's ever asked that question? 
If we're honest, trying to discern and figure out God's will can seem like a labyrinth, like a corn maze. You're in this maze trying to figure out which is the right way to go and you are certain it's the right way. And you make a turn and what? Dead end. Clearly that wasn't the way to go. And then you're looking around and it seems like you're just going around in circles. Or sometimes we approach God's will like a magic eight ball. You remember those things? You ask it a question, you shake it up and you turn it around. Outlook looks cloudy. If I ask this girl out, will she say yes? Doesn't seem likely. And we can approach God's will like that where we we sit there and we pray and we feel like we're shaking up the ball hoping that he will give us a clear and direct answer. And all of that can leave us frustrated thinking, God, if you have such a wonderful plan for my life, then why don't you just come out and tell me? Why does it have to be so confusing? Friends, there is a better way. Though God doesn't give us drive by drive, turn by turn directions like Siri, he does give us his word so that we can learn how to live in accordance with God's will. It's my job this morning in our passage. I want to draw out two guiding principles on how to live in God's will. If I've done my job today, as you leave today, you're going to better know how to live in God's will. Here's the two principles. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first principle we're going to see is that the faithful discern God's will. We're going to learn about discernment. Learning to discern God's will That doesn't happen overnight. We live in a microwave culture. We want everything immediately. That's not how God works. Nothing in God's economy happens like that. But over time, we can learn from God's revealed word. We can learn from our experiences how to discern God's will. And the second principle we'll see is this, that the faithful pursue God's will. Once we've come to a place where we believe that this is God's will, no matter what it is, we have to pursue it. The faithful will pursue God's will. We need to do that through prayerful planning and action. And hopefully we'll put all this together by the end of our time together. So let's all begin together in verse 1 to see how the faithful discern God's will. Hear God's word. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughter of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son. We are walking through the book of Genesis. And if you remember from last week, Sarah has died. She's been buried. And Abraham is about 140 years old. He's nearing the end of his life. And his son, Isaac, is about 40 years old now. Now Abraham turns his attention to find Isaac a wife. Abraham, as his father, he cares about his son and he's invested in his life. And as a good parent, he wants to use that influence he has in his life to help shape him and send Isaac in a Godward direction. The parents in the room would say amen to that. It's one of the, 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 the joys and tasks of a parent is to help equip and send our children out so that they live a Godward life. He also knows that he's received blessing. 
He's received promises from God. And he also knows that these promises and blessings are meant to continue throughout his lineage. Those promises and blessings don't end with him. That they're going to be transferred and passed on from generation to generation. He wants to set his son up well for that. And so he calls his most trusted, his most faithful servant to go find a wife that meets certain specific guidelines. Did you hear those in the text? He tells him, listen, go find a wife for my son Isaac. But here's the deal. She cannot be a Canaanite woman. And she needs to come from among my family back in Haran. Remember chapter 12, Abraham leaves his country, his kindred, to go to a land that God would show him. And Abraham's saying, I want you to go back to that land and from there among my people find Isaac a wife. Verse 5, the servant responds and said to him, perhaps the woman who meets those guidelines may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this oath. Now here we see the servant understands the first guidelines that Abraham set out. So he knows he's got to go back to, his, to Abraham's land and, and to go and find a wife for Isaac. But he wants to know what is he supposed to do if he finds a suitable uh, woman, but she doesn't want to come back. Perhaps she says, hey, that's all well and good, but I don't, I don't, I don't know who you are. I don't know who Isaac is. I, I, I like my life here. I don't want to go back with you. So he asked a reasonable question. So if that happens, should I come back and get Isaac and bring him along, right? Thinking once she meets Isaac and sees him, she'll be more comfortable to come. And Abraham explicitly states, under no circumstance is Isaac to go to Haran. He says, if a suitable will, a woman is unwilling to go back with you, then you've done all you can do. You've fulfilled your responsibility to me. And so they both agree to the terms. And the servant puts his hand under Abraham's thigh, which is an ancient Near Eastern custom similar to our shaking of hands today. And thank God that we shake hands today. I think we can all, no matter where you are, we can all go, that's a better policy, Right? Now you might be thinking, Clint, the beginning of your sermon, you talked about discerning God's will, pursuing God's will. This sounds like a passage on how to find a wife. What does everything that you just said have anything to do with that? Well, first you gotta remember this. This is narrative, historical narrative. It's not a lecture on God's will. So if I were planning a lecture on God's will, it'd be more systematic. It would be organized in a different way. That's not what our passage is. It's a, it's a story, a historical story about real people and how they live their lives. But the Bible also tells us that these historical accounts are given to us for our instruction. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that twice in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, that these things, these stories, the Old Testament was given for our instruction. What does that mean? It means that we're supposed to, when we come to these passages, ask this question. God, what am I supposed to learn here? More than just what happened, 
More than just, okay, it looks like Abraham found Isaac a wife. More than that, we're supposed to ask God, what am I to learn? Are there truths about you, God, that I'm supposed to learn? Am I supposed to learn about your character here, about your nature here, who you are and what you've done? Are there principles here that I'm supposed to glean so that I can apply those to my life? And one of the big principles that I think we can learn from this story is how to discern and pursue God's will. So let me, let me show you how that works. Getting back to the story for a moment. As far as we know, and all that we've done reading up to now, has God specifically told Abraham to get a wife for Isaac? If you go back and read these 24 chapters, you will never see an explicit command from God to Abraham that says, make sure you find a wife for Isaac. He also has not given him specific instructions on where his wife is supposed to come from, nor that Isaac is never to go back to Haran. You see what Abraham is doing? He is trying to figure out God's will for his life and his son's life. So how does Abraham know that it's God's will to find a wife for Isaac under these guidelines? Guidelines. And here's what I think has happened. I think Abraham has considered He has pondered, he has meditated on God's word for so long. All the many times that God has spoken to him, he has thought about those things. He's treasured them in his heart. He has meditated on God's word for so long that he has become familiar with the trajectory of God's word. John Piper has a very helpful illustration. It helped kind of crystallize this for me this week. Think about the trajectory of a rocket. Okay, you got a rocket here and it's going to launch. And you're asking, how will I know where it will go? Well, those who know physics will know. That's not me, by the way. But if you study the rocket's shape, its weight, the speed at which it's going to travel, the direction that it's pointed in, if you take into account the circumstantial realities around it, the wind patterns and all those kind of factors, you can very specifically tell where that rocket is going to go. That's, that's the trajectory of it. You can determine its path. See, the Bible does not give us turn-by-turn direction for our life. You are not going to find you in the Bible. You might find your name in the Bible, like Micah's name is in the Bible, not because she's in the Bible, because there was a prophet named Micah. Your life is not in the Bible, but your life is in the Bible. If we carefully study the shape and the weight and the speed and direction of God's word, if we take into account the circumstantial realities happening in our life, it is possible to see the trajectory of God's word that will help give us guidance and direction to discern God's will. Let me draw this out in Abraham's life. I think there are three trajectories that Abraham is tracking that leads him to these conclusions, these guidelines to find Isaac a wife, to make sure she doesn't come from among the Canaanites and that Isaac's not to go back to his uh, former country. And I think he's done so because he studied God's word. Let me show you. The first one is this. Abraham believes it's God's will for Isaac to have a wife. Again, God has not come out and specifically told him this, but he remembers God's word. You remember this in Genesis 17, 19? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring, his offspring after him. God has told Abraham, 
that he would establish his covenant not just with him, but also with Isaac and Isaac's what? His offspring, his children. And in order for that promise to be fulfilled, logically it follows that Isaac needs a wife. He can't produce children on his own, right? It's a simple biological reality. So Abraham has thought thoughtfully about that and said, okay, if, Abraham, if Isaac's going to have children, he needs a wife. Therefore, it's God's will that he has a wife. See how that works? The trajectory of God's word. Second, Abraham believes it's God's will for Isaac not to marry a Canaanite woman. That first one was pretty obvious. Everyone was going, okay, that makes sense to me. Here's the second one. God has not specifically forbidden Isaac to marry uh, from among the Canaanites, but he's come to this conclusion based on what God has told him in Genesis 15. You remember that? When, when Abraham is making that covenant with God, um, God gives Abraham insight into the halls of history. He tells them that his descendants will grow, they will become a mighty nation, but that they will be enslaved in a foreign country for 400 years. But after 400 years, they'll be delivered. That's the book of Exodus, by the way. And when they come into the land and take it over, now we're into the book of Joshua, they will take the land, and as part of taking the land, they will execute judgment on the Canaanites. This is what happens in Genesis. This is what he tells them in Genesis 15, 16. They shall come back here, meaning the people of God, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, in case you didn't know, Amorites will become the descendants of the Canaanites, okay? What God is telling Abraham is that 400 years from now, the people who are living in the land right now, their descendants will be judged. They are right now marked for judgment. Now, judgment's not coming today. It's coming 400 years from now because of their sin. What God is saying is, I'm gonna let their sin just pile up such that in 400 years, when I bring judgment, when you guys come and take the land and in doing so bring judgment on the people of that land, the people will look around and go, they have been living in such sinful idolatry for so long that no one will accuse God of injustice. What's the point? God has given Abraham a glimpse into the halls of history. 400 years. He will be dead in the ground at that point. But he knows in 400 years, the people of this land, the Canaanites, are going to be judged for their sin. And because the Canaanites are marked for judgment, he believes that it is unwise and against God's will for Isaac to marry into that people group and to get caught up in their false worship and sin. Think about it. If Isaac is to be a recipient of the blessings and the promises of God, he can't be caught up in a people who are going to be marked out for judgment. Do you see that connection? He has pondered and thought about the implications of coming judgment on the people of Canaan and realized my son cannot get mixed up in that. Third, Abraham believes it's God's will for Isaac to stay in the promised land and not go back with the servant to Haran. Remember what he said? See to it that you do not take my son back there. If you read through this account in Genesis, you'll see God has promised over and over to give this land to Abraham 
In Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17, here's one example from Genesis 13. He tells Abraham, lift up your eyes, look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you will see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Abraham has left his homeland. He has left his, uh, the place where he has grown up and he has settled into this land. And the one time Abraham leaves this promised land to go to Egypt, it doesn't work out too well for him, right? And he learned his lesson then. God has called me out of this land. He has called me to this land and I need to stay put. I need to trust God here no matter the situation. He also knows the allure of foreign cities. Just remember his nephew Lot. Did that work out well for Lot? No, it didn't. So Abraham doesn't want Isaac to leave the land of promise to be attracted and tempted by these foreign lands. It could be easy to be tempted and, 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 and to be lured away from the plan that God has had you on. It's just good wisdom not to, if, if a place offers uh, temptations, not to even look at it. The, the goal of, of the Christian life is not to get as close as you can to temptation, but to turn and flee from it. And Isaac wants to teach his, or Abraham wants to teach his son Isaac, it's not worth going here. God has a plan for you here in this land, so don't leave. Stay here. And so when Abraham puts all these things together, Thinking about God's word and all the implications it has, he comes to a decision based on what he believes to be God's will. That he will send out his trusted servant to find a wife from Isaac. And because he believes this is the will of God, he also believes that God will go before him. Do you hear him say that? The, the angel of God will go before you. Prepare this way for you to prosper your way. But he's also, and I love this, humble enough to acknowledge that he might be wrong. He said, listen, I really believe this is God's will. I believe it so much, I think God is going to send out an angel to prepare the way before you. But if the woman you find there will not come with you, that's acknowledging that he might be wrong. You're free of this obligation. When the servant asked, hey, what if she won't come to you? Did Abraham go, you are such a fool. Do you know who I am? I am Father Abraham. I'll have many sons. Many sons will I have. There's going to be a whole song written about me. He didn't say that. He says, listen, I've done my very best to think and consider what God's will is, and I might be wrong. I believe God will go before you, but if she doesn't come back with you, you're free from the responsibility. He is living in the tension of humble confidence. He is confident that God will go before him, but he's also humble enough to realize, I could make a wrong decision here. But does his, does the potentiality that he could make the wrong decision keep him from making a decision? No. He does his very best to discern what God's will is. He doesn't do so haphazardly or hastily. He comes to a place where he says, I really believe this is God's will and direction. I'm humble enough to realize I could be reading this wrong, but at some point I've got to make a decision. He is discerning God's will. And think about it. This is not the Abraham we meet early on. This is the Abraham later on in his life. 
His faith has matured through years of testing, through living in relationship with God. Think about all the things we've covered so far in our sermon series. All the ups and downs, the failures and the fumbles and all of the successes and triumphs of Abraham's life. His faith is growing. He is growing. And he's at a place where he's able to confidently discern God's will. Jen Wilkin is really helpful here. She writes, God is always more concerned with the decision maker than he is with the decision itself. Every decision is a product of who we are. So I would argue, in answering the question of how to know God's will, I would argue that a better question to ask is this. Who should I be versus what should I do? And let who we are inform what we do. I think we spend so much time focusing on the particulars of the decisions to the neglect of who we're becoming in Christ. It's the same way with raising children. Your job is not to, parents, teach them how to make every single decision in their life. That would be exhausting, right? Here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you do in this situation. No, our job is to train character. Our job is to form the decision makers. You have in your home little decision makers. Your job is to form them, shape them, guide them, set them on a trajectory so that when they come to the endless possibilities of all the decisions they'll make in their life, that because of how they've been formed and shaped, they will make the right decisions. Sometimes they'll make wrong ones. It's okay, right? God is concerned about us as decision makers. And if you will put, I've seen uh, people in our church give so much energy, so much time into one particular decision. I often pray, Lord, would they take that same intensity? Would they take that same drive and put that toward their spiritual life? Because if they would be formed and shaped according to your word to know you and to know what you love so they would love what you love, they will be sent out to make right decisions. God has formed and shaped Abraham over the years. Abraham has walked with God and learned about his character and nature. He has saturated himself with the word of God and the implications they have on, the, on his life. And by faith, he's making a decision in accordance with all of that. And yet, he has the humility to say, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. And it's okay. If I'm wrong, I know the Lord is with me. The chance that he might be wrong does not paralyze him from acting. Sometimes we get so paralyzed thinking I might make the wrong decision that we never act. See, God, discerning God's will is not meant to be confusing like a labyrinth. It's not some silly game of chance like a magic eight ball. The ability to discern God's will is the result of an ongoing relationship with God that is saturated by God's word. John Piper is surgical here. Let's let his words just pastorally shape us this morning. He writes this, the reason there are church people who are basically secular like everyone else except with a religious veneer is that they devote 99% of their time absorbing the trajectories of the world and 1% of their time absorbing the trajectories of the word. If you want to bring God's, for, if you want to bring forth the will of God in your life, 
like a mother brings forth a child, you must marry the Bible. For some of you, it's a stranger that you greet on the way to work but never have over for a relaxed evening of conversation and seldom invite along to spend significant time with you on vacation. Do not then be surprised if you are ill-equipped to read the trajectory of God's will for your own life. If you want to be equipped to know the trajectory of God's will for your life, God's word must rise above the noise of everyday life. You can't have both. God's word has got to become your food. God's word has got to become your air. And when that happens, you will start to discern God's will in your life. Now let's look at the rest of the passage to see that the faithful pursue God's will. Verse 10. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, at the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say drink? And I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So what do we know about this servant? We're not given his name. We don't exactly know who he is. But we know two things about him. That he was the oldest of Abraham's servants. And Abraham trusted him with his entire estate. And I believe that this servant has adopted Abraham's faith and has learned to follow the Lord as well. I think that's evident in the fact that Abraham trusts him with everything. He entrusts him with this most important task of finding Isaac a wife. And I think it's evident in the way that he is pursuing God's will for this mission. And we hear that in his prayer. He's he's praying and asking that the Lord would, would guide his steps. He believes that Abraham, like Abraham, that the Lord will go before him. He knows that that God has a plan for Isaac, and that he wants to be faithful to play his part in that plan. And so he agrees with Abraham, he loads up the camels, he grabs gifts to give this new bride-to-be, and they set out for the city of Nahor, where Abraham's family lived. And if you remember from those genealogies that we like to skip over, Nahor is Abraham's brother. Now again, uh, the, 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 the servant hasn't been given a drive-by-drive, turn-by-turn, direction-by-direction, step-by-step guide to finding a wife from Isaac. Did you hear Abraham give him a plan? Here's how you do it. No. He just knows, I've got I've to execute this plan. I've got to find a wife. So he comes up with a plan that's consistent with God's word and with wisdom. He's careful to obey every one of Abraham's parameters that, are, that have been word-saturated. And he makes a plan on how to execute uh, this mission. So here's his plan. Once he gets to the city of Nahor, he's going to go to the water well. Why does he do that? Well, he knows... In the evening time, it's customary for the women to come out. Smart guy, right? Instead of going out through all the city, he's like, I'm going to go to the one place I know all the women are going to come. No wonder Abraham has him managing his estate. This guy's wicked smart. 
He goes to the right place at the right time to find a wife. And he comes up with a plan that will test the character of the women there. Did you notice that? Now it's customary in this time, this is a people of great hospitality, that if they see a traveler, to offer them water, right? If you saw someone coming down the street, they were exhausted, they'd been on a long journey, you might offer them some water. So he figures, okay, once I get there, someone's going to offer me a drink. But it would be above and beyond for someone to say, not only will I give you a drink, but your 10 thirsty camels over there, I'm going to give them something to drink too. Anyone know how much water a camel can drink? It's impressive. 32 gallons of water at a time. It's a lot of water. 10 camels times 32 gallons. I'm no mathematician, but that's 320 gallons. Thank you. That's a lot of water. I got a thumbs up in the back. Thank you very much. That's a lot of water. Think about how many trips it's going to take to fill the, 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 the well water all, and then bring it over to the trough. How many trips is that going to take? That could take a long time. And so this plan is, listen, I know pretty much everyone here is going to offer me something to drink. But not everyone's going to offer my camels to drink. And so he takes this plan to the Lord in prayer. You notice that? He prays it, Lord, this is my plan. Go before me. He trusts God to direct his steps. Instead of being passive, just being like, I'm going to show up and then God's going to magically make this person appear. He comes up with a plan. He's active. He's not indecisive. He's attentive. He takes that plan to the Lord. Ian Duguid helpfully explains. He was proposing a test of character, a test of a generous and hospitable spirit. It required someone to be willing to go the extra mile to minister to a stranger. What is more, his test was bathed in prayer. He was a living example of Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So he didn't ask for a miraculous sign from God. Instead, he sought supernatural guidance in the way it so often comes through ordinary events of life. Do you notice he didn't ask God for a miraculous sign? Nothing about what happens here is really miraculous, right? That said, he did seek the Lord's guidance and confirmation, but he did it through the ordinary, everyday realities of life. I think so many times when we're trying to discern God's will, we come up with miraculous signs. Okay, then I'll know, God, that this is the direction I'm supposed to go. And then when we don't get the miracle, we go, oh, I guess God didn't want that to happen. That's not how it works. And if you notice in Genesis 24, before he finishes his prayer, he meets Rebecca. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When, he, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The servant meets Rebecca. 
She's a great niece to Abraham. She's a second cousin to Isaac. So she's from his family. That's parameter number one. She also passes the test of character. She uh, waters his camels. The servant has found a woman from Abraham's family and she's shown herself to be a woman of great character and kindness by the way that she helped the servant and his camels. And in verse 21, we find the servant gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I think about that. So as she's taking the time to water those camels in his silence, I, bet he, I believe he was silent in word, but, but talking to the Lord. Lord, is this the one? Look, she's passing the test that I put before you. She meets the requirements. She's from Abraham's family. She's not from a Canaanite. Will she go back with me? Lord, let me know. The next few verses, the servant asks Rebecca if he can stay with her family at her, at, at her family's house. And she says, of course. Another implication that the, the door is open, right? He asks, can I stay with your family? And she says that we have plenty of room. Why don't you come? And he goes back with her. He meets her family. They sit down for the evening meal. And as the table is set, I love this. The servant says, I can't eat a bite of food until I've said what I have to say. The servant then basically recounts everything that's happened. He tells them all about Abraham. You remember your, your brother Nahor and he's had a son and you're not gonna believe this. They, they were barren for so long, but God promised them. He, he, he told them he would bless them and he's, he's doing something through Abraham and his family. And in his old age, he gave him a son. He was a hundred years old and Sarah gave him a son. And now Sarah's passed away and we're trying to find a wife for Isaac. And here's what my, my master Abraham told me to do to come here to this land. And I, and I had this plan that I would come with all these camels. And your daughter, your, Rebecca, she not only gave me a drink, but she gave all of my camels to drink. And I think the Lord's hand is in this. What do you think? Is God's hand in this? And after hearing all of that, he says, if then you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or the left. After all of that, the servant is he's pretty convinced that, that she's going to go with him. But like his master Abraham, he's like, it may not be. I'm humble enough to realize that this may not be the one. He still needs to hear from Rebecca. He still needs to hear from her family that she will go and be Isaac's wife. But don't miss this. As confident as he is, he is trusting every single detail to the Lord. The whole process, Lord, it's in your hands. If Rebecca is not the one for Isaac, he wants to know now so that he can go back out and find another person for him. Here's how they respond. Verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And then we hear from Rebecca in verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. They say, after all of that, after hearing everything that's come, the miraculous nature of Isaac's birth, the way that you came here, 
and how every little detail seemed to fall just in place, they're saying we can't pronounce good or bad on this because it's from the Lord. And it seems that his will is in this. And it seems good to everyone, Rebecca, her family, the servant that she would go. And the story ends with Isaac and Rebecca meeting and they become husband and wife. And this story gives us a wonderful picture of what it means to pursue God's will. Abraham and the servant have done their very best to discern that it's God's will for them to go. They've been actively growing in their faith and relationship with God. They've considered God's word and all the implications. They've discussed it together. They made a decision. And now the servant is going and pursuing that will. And what has he done? He's made a plan. And what I think this text helps us do is avoid two unhelpful extremes that I've seen in people's lives as a pastor. Here's the first extreme. Autonomous decision-making. What that means is that you never consider the Lord's will at all. When it comes to building and setting up and planning your life, God is not even an afterthought. You are in charge of your own uh, life. God's will has nothing to do with it. If you want it, you go for it. If you want to take that career, go for it. If you want to marry this person, do it. If you want to take that job, awesome. The Lord's will has nothing to do. You build your life completely apart from ever considering what the Lord's will is. It's completely autonomous. That's one extreme. The second one is paralyzing indecision. So if on one hand, it's autonomous decision making, the other one is paralyzing indecision. That's when you overanalyze every single decision to the point that you never take a step of faith and act. You spend your whole life worrying and wondering what is God's will for my life that you never do anything. The faithful will do the hard work to discern God's will. The faithful will prayerfully and actively pursue God's will. See, we can't live on either one of those extremes. So I want to give you five practical steps to living in God's will. Number one, pursue the explicitly stated will of God for your life. Now I mention that because there are several times in the Bible where God isn't leaving it up to to interpretation. He's not leaving it up to uh, to chance or the fact that you may come around and, and, and decide. He says, this is my will for you. And I think it, we would spend the majority of our time pursuing the explicitly stated will for God, of God in your life. We would be better at discerning the other trajectories. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explicitly gives us direction on his will for our life. Do you remember it? Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He's speaking uh, to a group of people who are considering, uh, you know, the everyday decisions of our life. And Jesus says, before you consider your clothing and your food and what you're going to do here or there, remember this. Don't miss the main thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. In other words, when you're so committed to pursuing God's, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God, you'll find that a lot of these other things just kind of fall into place. Kevin DeYoung, who's written a really helpful book on God's will, it's called Just Do Something. By the way, if you're looking for a good resource, if you're going, I really want to take what we've learned today and go a little bit further, I highly commend this book to you by Kevin DeYoung. It's short, it's sweet, very practical, very helpful. It's called Just Do Something. In that book, he writes this. The decision to be in God's will is the daily decision we face to seek God's kingdom or ours. You hear that? Every day you have a decision to make. Whose kingdom will you build? Whose kingdom will you seek? 
Will you submit to his lordship or not? Will you live according to his rules or our own? The question God cares about most is not where should I live, but this. Do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do I love my neighbor as myself? It's that second question that gets to the heart of God's will for your life. Above all else, when you consider God's will for your life, do you seek his kingdom or do you seek to build your own? Another way to ask it is this, is Jesus your king? As we think about God's will for our lives, the first question we have to ask is, is he your king? Have you submitted your life to him? Do you love God above all else? And do you desire to live as his son or daughter? If you've not made that decision of faith, then all this, everything else we're saying is completely irrelevant. You have to first seek his kingdom, which means he has to become your Lord and Savior. This king not only is the everlasting king of kings and lord of lords, he's also the king who laid down his life for you, inviting you to follow him. Often I think we get so consumed with secondary and tertiary questions about life, we miss the main point of it all. Do you also know that there's other times in scripture when God's word explicitly states his will for your life? Here's one in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. Right there. What's next? Your sanctification. It is God's will that you would live and pursue a holy, set-apart life. That means avoiding things that the Bible says are sinful and cultivating things in your life that God says will bring life to your life. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is what? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think we could just live this verse our whole life and we would stay busy. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Whose life would not be better off if you could look around and find things to be rejoicing about, to be thankful about, and to be prayerful about. Sometimes I think we get so busy about the particulars of life, we forget the general God-given call in our life to grow in holiness, to pray often, to grow in gratitude and find things to rejoice in. So pursue the explicitly stated will of God in your life. Number two, Saturate yourself in God's word so that you can discern God's will. I think we covered this in great detail earlier, but it's worth noting again. You cannot know God's will for your life if you're not saturated in his word, period. Period, you can't. You cannot know God, let alone his will, if you are not saturated in his word. It's through knowing, believing, and loving his word that you become equipped to discern his will. Number three, develop your relationship with God through prayer. Prayer is simply, it's not only this, but it's simply this, talking with God. It involves talking and listening. Bring your plans to God like the servant did. He made a plan and he brought it to the Lord and he asked him for guidance. Trust the gentle guidance of the Spirit as you live. I think so many times we're looking for huge written clouds in the sky for guidance and direction and often it's much more subtle. I think the kingdom is, is, is subversive and subtle in nature. It's almost always gentle 
as the Spirit leads us. This will happen. You can pray and set aside time throughout the day, but you can also pray constantly throughout the day in little moments by moments. As you meet somebody, Lord, help me have a conversation about the gospel with them. As you uh, see emails come up, maybe before you respond, Lord, I've got a difficult email to write here. Help me to be gracious and generous. I mean, it can happen all throughout the day. Number four, bring other people of faith in to guide you. God in his love for us has given us the gift of Christian community. You are not meant to live this life alone. As you do face some of these bigger decisions in your life, Bring other people of faith in to help you. I've been helped so many times to bring in older, wiser, more mature people who've walked with God a lot longer than I have and say, here's what I'm thinking. Does this seem good? Does this seem right? Does it seem fitting? Am I missing something here? Are there parts of God's word I'm not bringing to bear on this plan? What do you think? Now, they're not infallible people, but they're helpful And they can help bring other wisdom in. And number five, the last one, just do something. Just do something. At some point in discerning God's will, you are going to get to the place where you have to make a decision. Do not become paralyzed by fear, thinking that you might do something that is outside of God's will. Don't become paralyzed by fear of doing something because you want 100% certainty before acting. Friends, look at me. Most of the big decisions in your life, you are not going to get 100% certainty on. 100% safety on. 100% certainty that nothing wrong will happen in this. You are not guaranteed that by one single verse of Scripture. So we shouldn't expect that. But that's not the threshold for decision making. Here is the foundation you can go to sleep with tonight. God is sovereign. He is in control. And guess what? You might make a wrong decision. But did you know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less? When you are adopted and loved in Christ, he has set the fullness of his infinite, unfailing love upon you. So go make some decisions. Go live your life. Do so pursuing God's will. Do so discerning God's will. But at some point, make some decisions. Do something. Take some risks for the Lord. You will get it wrong sometimes, but that's okay. God's grace is not only abundant enough to cover your sins, it's also abundant enough to cover your mistakes. Seven Mile Road, God does have a wonderful plan for your life. He does not expect you to figure out every single detail and to get to a place of 100% certainty before making decisions. He is at work in the details, so you can rest assured knowing that he will work all things out for your good. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and, and trust him with the everyday stuff of life. You are free and encouraged to seek the will of God, to ask him for wisdom and guidance and let the spirit gently guide you through prayer. And as we give ourselves to knowing him and loving him and trusting him through his word, he will form and shape our character and you will be equipped to discern God's will and to pursue it with vigor.